There's much more to this great Truth and Rhythm interview. Just continue on to the next part of the episode. Also, be sure to subscribe to this channel. If you've already done so, please share it with friends. And become a member by joining Truth and Rhythm on Patreon or consider donating at funkinslift.net. Thank you very much. When you were hanging around the studios back then during the Solar Records era, mm -hmm. you know, did you ever uh, hang out for someone else's session that turned out to be a big record? Oh, yeah. Uh, second time around. I remember well, I was working on uh, from nine until uh, Leon had this apartment out in, in uh, Inglewood. And uh, we would go out there because he had this little eight track. And that's where we were putting together a lot of stuff uh, back in the days when he was working with us on the first two albums. And so I was working on nine and teal and him and uh, Will Shelby were working on second time around. And I'm like, wow, that's that's bad. You know, so you could hear hits in the making. And that happened a couple of times, you know, um, with with Leon working on different things, you know, because I was in the studio and it's like, wow, that's, that's a hit. And sure enough, it was a hit. I mean, I, like I said, I was in the studio all the time. I lived there because Leon worked all the time. And if he wasn't working with us, he was working with somebody else. So I could always go by the studio and, you know, get in on background parts or get in on a song just because I'm happy to be there. You know, so that was kind of how I worked in the Solar days. You know, we, we were a family and everybody kind of hung out at everybody's sessions. It was really a family, a lot like the Motown family out here. But uh, it was similar to that. What do you think it was about Leon's approach that was so special that he was able to turn out so many hits and, and get it to click like it did? Leon was a workaholic. He uh, he was always we go. He's we used to call them lick savers, and it was these uh, miniature uh, tape recorders, you know. So we we always everybody had them back in that day. After we, you know, Leon, he was first one I saw with a lick saver, and it was just a little minor um, a mini tape recorder. And so it was kept around all the time for when you had melodies or something in your mind. You you know you take out your little lick saver and you put it on there so you don't forget it because you will forget it. I don't care how much you try to remember it, it will it will go away if you do not. I put it on some kind of form of media so that you can can capture it so we did that a lot and so uh that's how that all stuff happened you know you just had a lick saver with you all the time and leon you know being the guy he was you know he was always he was very very creative he had great ideas uh he knew exactly what he wanted uh at all times and he was a 
you know, one of those guys that it's got to be right. You you can sing it. You thought perfectly. But like, yeah, yeah, that was great, man. But let me get one more. It's like, Leon, I thought that was pretty good, man. Just give me one more. He would just, he wasn't hearing something. And so he would get it till he heard what he needed to hear. And so those, those are some of the things I picked up from Leon. He was really good at that. And uh, like I said, Leon and I were very, very good friends. And a lot of people don't know this, but back in the day, he had tickets, uh, 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 season tickets to the Lakers games, so he would out. I step, you know, he pulled me outside. You, you want to go to the Laker game? So we would leave about six o'clock, going to the Laker game. And everybody, whoever he's working with, was still in the studio. We would disappear for about three hours and come back and take up where we left. They would never know where we went, but I don't know if they figured it out. But we would always be going about three hours. We'd come back about ten thirty, and he'd take up where he left off. But he was a basketball fan too, and he knew I was. So, and of course, I'm going to go because he's in charge. So it's his studio; he can do what he wants. But uh, we come back and we work to three, four o'clock in the morning. You know, that was just who he was. He was constantly working, and he still is. I mean, Leon, if you see him today, he still got tracks. He still got ideas. He's still somewhere cutting something for somebody. So that's who he is, and that's the only guy I've ever known him to be. He's he's a great producer and a great creative person. And, and in my opinion, he was single-handedly responsible for the success of Solar Records from beginning to pretty much when, when it ended because he was responsible for hits for everybody. Lakeside, Whispers, Shalimar, Dynasty. Only person he didn't get a hit on, he worked with uh, Midnight Star a little bit on their first album, but uh, pretty much everybody else over there in the early parts of these uh, the Solar days, he was responsible for it. So he set the tone. Maybe a bit underrated too as a bass player? Oh, yeah. I mean, Leon was really a good bass player. I didn't know that about him, uh, even though he played some with uh, the, you know, the Silvers. But uh, I, I watched him play and he was really a great bass player, uh, played very well and had creative ideas. You know, I mean, that bass line on uh, um, uh, And the Beat Goes On is really good. Uh, but that's Leon. He played bass on that. He played bass on... Uh, most of the Shalimar stuff, that's Leon playing bass. Uh, and the Whisper stuff, Beat Goes On, all that stuff, that's Leon. I'm not sure. He might even be playing on um, like some of the Evelyn King stuff that he produced too, right? Uh, yeah, he played on that. Pretty much on anything he wrote and produced, he played something, mostly the bass, because that was his main instrument. He fooled around with drums. Now, what he used to do is he used to play what we called drums by numbers, because he would go put the, he would play the bass line, um, the, the kick bass, and then he'd come back and he'd play the drums and then he'd put the hi-hat on. And then when he finished, it sounded like a drum kit, but he called it drums by numbers. And he did that on a lot of the Shalomar and Whisper stuff. The, 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 and in fact, I saw the interview that you had with uh, Scotty and, and Walt, and they talked about how he did that uh, in the studio, uh, the drums by numbers. But it's true, he did it. I witnessed him do it many times. Well, he made it work. However, he, he sure did. did. I mean, he was good, and you couldn't tell on the record that it was done that way. It sounded like a drummer, because he would do the drum feels in between. I mean, he did the whole thing, you know, because he knew what he heard, and you know that's really something. Because when you hear something, and I'm like that as a producer, I'll tell somebody I'm looking for this sound. They say, well, "What what is like?" I say, "I don't know. I know it when I hear it," because I'm hearing it in my head, and I'm the only one to hear it until I see. It. It's like, okay, that's it. That's what I want to hear right there. And he was very good at that. He would know what is going on in his in his mind, and he was able to get it on tape. 
uh, I picked up I, I picked up a lot of things from these guys I studied under, and uh, it made me who I am. Bit of a sponge, right? Just absorbing. oh, no doubt. Yeah, because yeah, like I said I was around even with Frank Wilson. I mean, he 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 actually uh, blessed Timar and I because you know we were young Christians at the time, and Frank was really strong Christian person, and. Um, you know, he kind of uh, uh, befriended us and he started hiring us to do a lot of his background stuff over there when he was working uh, on things at Crystal Sound. That's where he was uh, was recording. And um, we worked with uh, Marilyn McCoo and Billy Davis's album. We worked on uh, New Birth's album with him that he was producing. We worked on Renee Geyer. She was an Australian uh, woman, and she was really had a soulful voice. He, he did an album on her. We did those. And the, the biggest thing we did there was with Lenny Williams. Uh, he and I did the backgrounds on his biggest iconic record, Because I Love You. So that's Timar and I on the backgrounds on that particular record with a guy named John Foot, no, John Fox. Uh, he was one of uh, uh, Frank's staff writers because he wrote Skip and Work for, Ken, uh, for uh, Eddie Kendricks, and he wrote a song for us on our album called Miss Look But Don't Touch. So he was a, str a strong songwriter for uh, um, Frank, but he used us three on the backgrounds for Lenny Williams' Because I Love You. And I'm, I'm really proud of that because that everybody knows that record. Yeah, it should be. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody. And we actually got our little part on there, me and T-Bar. We made up that little shooby dooby doo part at the end in the breakdown. Uh, and this is another thing I liked about Frank. He would be in the studio and he'd be grooving, you know, and his eyes would be closed. And you would be doing things behind him and singing stuff and he'd never pay attention. But you did, if you said or sang something, he said, what'd you say? What, what, do that again. So he was always listening. He was always listening. He just wanted to pay attention unless it was something <laughs> that caught his ear. And so we were singing that do, 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 that part and he said do that again and so that made it to the record so we're really proud that we actually had a part uh on the backgrounds on lenny williams record wow just always yeah. dialed in somehow yeah and that's what that's what he taught me he's like he's always listening he's just not hearing anything to catch his attention because <laughs> we'd be doing stuff all the time and he wouldn't pay us any any mind but you say something like, what, what was that do that again i said okay he's listening all the time that, that let me know he's listening. He's just focused on what it is he's doing, but I still hear what's going on around me. That's what I, I mean. We talk about producers like, you know, Quincy Jones, all the other guys. Um, one of their great talents is being able to just hear almost anything that's in yep. the mix. Yeah. You know? Yep. That is amazing. Quincy is one of the best at that. Uh, if you listen to that stuff that he did on Michael, it's just brilliant. Uh, from top to bottom, um, you know, I was listening to a uh, interview with uh, Greg Fillingaines, uh recently, and he was talking about the Thriller track, and he played a Rhodes on it all the way through, but he said you can't hear it because all of the stuff that they put on top of it, the pads and stuff, but he said I played it all the way through. But it just goes to show you that you can produce and everything is not a spotlighted portion is there for the feel or for whatever it is that it's adding to that because you spotlight certain things during the course of a record which makes the record what it is like if a guitar part here you may not hear that throughout the song but then it comes to a point where you spotlight it that's what makes the record and knowing how to do that is certainly a talent uh that that so many great producers have had not just quincy but so many that have that talent i know maurice white was was 
excellent. In fact, I uh, met David Foster one time at a party, and he told me that um, uh, Maurice White taught him everything he knew about produ producing. I said, what? He said, yeah, I uh, uh, used to work with uh, Maurice back in the Earth, Wind & Fire days. He played on a lot of the records and stuff like that. But I was impressed with that because David Foster is such a fine producer. And for him to give credit to Maurice White like that was, I was like, wow, that that's saying something. That's really saying something about Maurice. But yeah. we, we, we were friendly for a while, and I, I got a chance to, to sit in on some of his uh, sessions. This was long after the heydays of the uh, Earth Wind when he was working at Columbus Studios over there in West Hollywood. And um, I went over there a couple of times and sat in. I just asked him questions about, how, you know, how did you make your, your records sound so much cleaner than just about everybody's records that were on the radio? And he said, well, he, he, did, he did a lot of stuff with high end because he said he put a lot of high end on stuff because each generation, this is back in the tape days when we were using tape, each generation, you lose uh, high end. So he would always overcompensate. So by the time the, the, the generations came down, he had what he wanted to have. I said, wow, that's, that's really, that was really a tip. But, uh, yeah, he was very, very, I, I mean, he was, listen, just listen to the Earth Wind Fire stuff. It's just, it's just amazing. Maurice was, was a bad boy. Oh, no doubt. I was actually just a little off topic, but I was just interviewing a guy earlier this week. Uh, with a group called the Motet. He's a drummer, leader of the band. And they've done a lot of uh, sets where they'll do an entire set of, um, you know, Parliament Funkadelic, mm -hmm. Tower of Power, um, Michael Jackson, Prince, Earth, Wind & Fire. And they did like, they've done like a dozen of these and they go mm -hmm. deep into the catalogs. And I asked him which one was the most challenging. And he said, definitely Earth, Wind & Fire because it was <laughs> just so precise. Yeah, yeah. You know, so... Ooh. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. And you know, we, we, we miss him because of the talent that he was. Uh, but, um, at the time that I was kind of hanging out with him, he was dealing with that, uh, um, what do you call it? Uh, Parkinson's. Yeah. He was dealing with that. And, uh, that's why he wasn't touring with the band. He told me cause he didn't like being in public, uh, like that. Cause you know, he was shake. He wasn't doing that badly when I was around him, but you could see that he had that shake thing going and he just said I, you know i'm through with the live stage and then when he kind of got it under control however he did it he did go back and start doing some tours with them for a little while there before he stopped again but that was the main reason he had stopped because he was dealing with that yeah 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 um you know we we've talked about it quite a bit and danced around it otis but you know if somebody asked you and i am asking you now mm -hmm. uh you know how would you describe the lakeside sound you know what was the identifiable elements of it that made it distinctive and unique well we had uh, uh we were a funk band and there's no doubt about that uh that was our mainstay and that was our bread and butter uh, but our sound was based on we we started using the the electric bass and the synth bass on all the way live and that kind of became our signature if you notice on all of our funk records there's a synth bass and a electric bass playing along with it doing pops and different other things to solidify that foundation of the bass and that has become like our style through the years and uh we were because our vocals and things are so good it's because we were a singing group 
uh, the four singers were singers. That was our main job in the studios, Timar, Tommy, Mark, and myself. We did all the vocals. And so our vocals were better than most bands because we were singers. We were singers first. And so what we did live also was because we were a singing group that kind of morphed into a self-contained band we had choreography we were you know because back in the day there was a group like the temptations there was a band and there was a singing group and they did all the choreography well we were doing all that that's why the other bands that we toured with couldn't really do what we did because we we, we were we out danced them and we out sang them because most bands were comprised of people who sang but their main thing was their instruments they played and sang and there were some pretty good ones but again when you have guys that are totally committed to singing and they sing like R&B guys, I mean, all the way to the dramatics, OJ's type of singing, then that separated us from everybody. And then when we were dancing like we did, nobody could do what we did. That's why we had this reputation as the baddest man in the land. People didn't want to go on after us. And that was really true. And it, people would be shuffling. In fact, one of the, the times when we, uh, we worked with Steve, Stevie Wonder at the uh, Rose Bowl, about 50,000, 60,000 people there. It's one of those all day concerts. I mean, everybody performed from Ashford and Simpson, uh, Frankie Bellion, and we were for somehow we ended up going on next to last for Stevie Wonder. And then word came to us that Stevie decided he didn't want to close. He wanted to go where we are. <laughs> and we were like, wait a minute, you want us to go on after Stevie Wonder? Are you insane? They were like, well, you know, it's kind of out of our heads. Uh, that's that's what Stevie wants to do. So. We ended up closing the Rose Bowl at this, uh, it was a, uh, it wasn't a Bud Fest, it was a cool jazz fest. And uh, when he went off, before he went off, he made sure everybody stuck around for us. He said, you know, you guys, don't forget Lakeside's coming up next. And everybody stayed and we went out and did our thing. But uh, I don't know if he didn't want to go behind us or if he just decided he didn't want to close. But uh, people did not want to go on after Lakeside. People did not want to do it. And, and you know, I'm proud of that because I knew when we finished, like I said, back in the day, our goal was standing ovations. If we didn't get a standing ovation, we felt like we didn't do a good job. So that was our standard. And so that's why when we became a touring band and doing the arenas, that's why we were as good as we were because nobody could do what we did. How did you feel about um what coolio did with fantastic voyage you know did you discover it just hearing it on the radio or did you know about it beforehand or i had heard about it from someone i don't remember where i heard it and then i heard it on the radio i i didn't like it at all i mean it paid us and I, you know i'm thankful for the financial blessing but if it would have ever had my druthers i wouldn't have done it uh you know but he did a lot of things wrong he already put it out before he had cleared it so uh dick ended up getting a lot of money from him at that time we, he was one that had our uh, half of our publishing there so uh but you know it ended up being what it is and it was also introduced our music to a younger generation so those were the positives about it and like i said the financial part of it was great you know i'm not complaining about that but uh you know sampling to me is something people do when they don't have their own ideas and to me uh that's one of the problems i have with the whole genre of 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 uh rap is basically there it's plagiarism and, and i'm just going to put it like it is it's plagiarism because this is the only industry that allowed plagiarism to become a um 
an art form. Uh, it started with that. Everything, you know, if you go all the way back to the Sugar Hill Gang, they plagiarized uh, uh, the, the uh, Sheik's uh, song, uh, Good Times. I mean, and, and they had to fight to get paid for that, but that's how it started. And it's been that uh, Rick James had to sue uh, MC Hammer for uh, can't touch it. You know, it, it was stuff that had to happen and rules and laws had to be changed so that people couldn't just take other people's music and not pay them for it. And so it's been built on plagiarism. It still is that. And that's why I don't have a lot of respect for it. I, I realize it sells a lot of copies. I get it. Monetarily, it's it's a uh, you know it's big, but artistically, I have very little respect for it. I'm gonna, probably nobody's gonna like me saying that, but I'm just telling you from from a musician standpoint that uh, plagiarism to me is shouldn't be allowed, but it is. So it is what it is, and it's become what it's become, and there's nothing that can be done about it. You know. Um... If you get a chance, Otis, you should um, go check out the show I did with Emery Thomas, who was a drummer for uh, Johnny Guitar Watson. Oh, okay, he, Emery he, Thomas. Emery yeah, Thomas. he goes he he goes on a long um, tangent. <laughs> yeah, about that what you were just talking about, and you were mm -hmm. gonna, you know, anyone who uh, agrees with what you just said uh, really enjoys what Emery Thomas says about it because okay, I'm writing his name down right now, Emery Thomas. I get it. It's, it's become what it's become. But if you, you know, you can't even plagiarize papers in college because you'll get an F. Right. You can't plagiarize other people's art as an artist because if you took the Mona Lisa and you uh, changed the smile or, or, or uh, you know, her frown or whatever it is into a smile, then, you know, you'd be drummed out of the artistic community uh, because it's not allowed. But in music, it has become an art form. So go figure. Right. Well, the thing that troubles me about it is how it um, marginalized just bands and playing yes. actual instruments. And so now exactly. you have, you know, generations of young people who maybe haven't gravitated toward that yep. because of the shortcut. And, yep. you know, yeah. Well, to me, it was like, you know, uh, not having to go to school for 10 years to become a doctor. You know, It was a shortcut because back in the day when I was growing up, the only way you could be in the music business, you had to have some musical talent. You had to be able to sing, you had to be able to play. There was nothing you could, else you could do. And so now if you can uh, work computers and drum machines and stuff like that and sample, you're in the music business. Yeah, so definitely mixed feelings home. about it because it did help keep funk uh, at least you know, on the radar of young people. I agree with that. I agree with that. It did. And, you know, like I said, it brought people back to us. It brought people back to, you know, Rick James and people like that who, you know, weren't any longer in the limelight like at one time they were because there was a younger crowd of people listening to music. So it reintroduced us to a lot of people. And I appreciate that for sure. Yep. So you had mentioned about, I think, Outrageous was like the last record you did with Lakeside. Um, mm -hmm. What was your history with them in terms of performing after that through the years? Um, I actually left the band in 86. And, uh, you know, um, because, I, like I said, there was some things that were going on. Dick was uh, playing politics at the label. Uh, the group was kind of stuck to me in, in a, I don't know, a hole creatively and it just you know i always told him 
a long time ago, I wasn't going down with the ship, <laughs> with the with the the, the pirate ship. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna swim for shore, and that's basically what I did. We were on you know the back end of our career, and it was like, well, I'm gonna do start doing some other things, and so I went on and and started doing other things away from the group, and they. They had a, a lull in there because, like we were saying, where you know they weren't able to really work because there was no demand for the old school funk bands and stuff like that. And then there was a resurgence in the '90s. So I went back and I worked with them in the early '90s and did a few dates with them, and then you know, uh, kind of you know, went back into retirement. And then in t 2012, uh, uh, the guy that had been with them for many, many years, I think his name was. Um, uh, Tavier, Donnie, I can't think, I didn't know him that well because I wasn't in the group, but I would see him. Anyway, he um, he ended up passing, uh, he had cancer and passed. And so Stevie called me and said, look, we need somebody to sing your songs. Uh, either you can come back and do them or we gotta find somebody. I said, well, let me think about it. And because I was doing a lot of different things uh, that didn't have to, anything to do with touring. And so after I thought about it, I said, okay, you know, I'll, I'll come back. And I've been back with them ever since because uh, it works out because mostly we work during the weekend. So, you know, we go out and work on Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and I'm usually back in place on Monday or so. And I can do the things I do here because I work with um, uh, the Hollywood Beauty Awards and the uh, Daytime Beauty Awards, which I've mentioned to you in, in some of the things I sent you. Uh, in fact, uh, our uh, Hollywood Beauty Awards is coming up on March the 9th this year, which is uh, uh, less than two weeks. So uh, that's something I, I, I produce the music and and write some of the uh, things for the show. Uh, but all the bumper music I produce and, and write. So that's something uh, I'm doing musically. And uh, that was kind of, you know, the parting of the ways for me and uh, with them. And then, like I said, we, we're back and we and here's the thing I always liked about us being on stage. Everybody is doing what they do best. When we're on stage, the bass player Marvin's playing the bass, Stevie's playing the guitar. Everybody's doing what they do best in the studio. Everybody wanted to to do something that they weren't that necessarily that strong at, and so to me, our strongest uh, uh, time is when we're on stage together because everybody's doing what they do best. And how would you say the shows differ today from back in the day? Well, for us, not that much because you know we're still high energy and you know that's one of the things that people always mention us you guys have so much energy on stage well for some reason when we hit the stage we become different people i mean <laughs> you know because guys i have little aches and pains when we're back in the dress room but for some reason when that adrenaline kicks in man we go back to 30 years old and it's amazing it amazes me sometimes like i, I don't know how we do it because uh but it's adrenaline and the love for performing because we were performers before we were recording artists and so that's we're, we've actually gone back to our roots but the good thing about going back to our roots for where we came from is that we have hit records of our own now that we could perform and that's what makes the difference mm -hmm. uh so glad that you are back you know out there still doing it and you know bringing the funk to people um yeah you know i found it so gratifying i felt like um a little bit before the pandemic for sure, a couple of years before the funk was making a little bit of a resurgence through all these, you know, oh yeah, uh, cruises and and different, you know, things yep. that are bringing all the bands back out there. Right, 
For sure. Absolutely. That's what I'm saying. You know, and there and the research surges is that people want to hear live music again because, you know, so much of what's going on today, especially for our baby boomer demographic, they're not interested in a lot of what's going on musically. Uh, that's why they listen to the Temptations, Lakeside, the Barcades, Cameo, you know, the, the old school acts because they relate to the music. It's the, it's the soundtrack of their lives. They grew up with this music. And so that's what they tend to turn to when they're partying or when they're, you know, listening to music around the house. They, they, they're, not, they're not listening to Justin Bieber and stuff like that. They're listening to us and, and all the groups that they grew up with. That's because that's what they can relate to. I'm the same way. I listen to what I grew up listening to rock wise and R&B wise. I listen to the same stuff. My, my uh, 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 song list is all that stuff. I love it still. And it stands the test of time. I do too, uh, for the most part, except for I still, um, you know, I go deep though. I listen to the albums, not just hits. Oh yeah. Yeah. For sure. Oh yeah. Sometime I'll get into Stevie Wonder Moon. I just put on talking book cause everything's great on th those albums, everything. He just dropped the needle and go because it, it was, oh my God, his music at that time with intervisions talking book. And then, oh, the story about <laughs> Stevie and us, we were, um, uh, recording at Crystal Sound Studios, which was basically his studio. He was in there from six o'clock to whenever he decided to leave. And at the time we were working with Frank Wilson and we were working during the day. We'd be done like about five. So Stevie would come in and start working. And at this time, you know, we didn't know, but he was working on songs in the key of life. And so he would give us an opportunity before he really got serious to, you know, he'd be in there playing drums and fooling around on the keyboards and stuff. And we could come in and actually watch him. But then once they started to get going, they would, you know, they cleared the studio because they didn't want, it, want people in there. But we, we were uh, outside one time, actually we were coming out of the studio in the back and Stevie was sitting in a car with someone of course, on the passenger side, and they were blasting something in the car. So it was Timar and Mark, Mark and myself, and we were like, I wonder what this. So we were kind of scared to go over. You know, we were like 20, 21 years old or something. And so the great Stevie Wonder is sitting over there in the car listening to something. So we kind of ease our way over, inch our way over, and we're listening, and it, was, and it was bad track, you know. So when it went off, we said, Stevie, what was that? And he said, that was I Wish. So we got a chance to hear I Wish before it hit the streets. And we didn't know it at the time, but that's one of my greatest memories of Crystal Sound Studios is getting a chance to preview I Wish off of Songs in the Key of Live before it hit the streets. I'll never forget that. Wow. <laughs> I'll never forget that. I will never forget that. Oh, man. Yeah. Well, I mentioned earlier that like Ohio Players were my favorite first band, but Stevie Wonder also, definitely. Yeah. He's the Genius. one. He's Genius. The one. Yeah, oh, God. Uh, everybody to me is behind Steve. <laughs> he's he's the gold standard for just about everything. His vocals, man, outstanding. Everything about him, outstanding. Yeah, um, that's a cool story. So, you know, when you look back over the Lakeside catalog, Otis, mm -hmm. what what would you say is your uh, personal favorite project out of the whole thing? Well, it would have to be the Fantastic Voyage album because, um, you know, I really worked hard, you know, trying to keep things on track with that album. And uh, the songs 
are really good on that album uh, from Voyage to Your Love's on the Ones, I Need You to Say Yes. really really strong songwriting and production and it was our first time at bat and that's what i'm most proud of because we had been under the tutelage of uh uh leon silvers for two albums and before that frank wilson and so we had never you know taken the reins ourselves but dick felt strongly enough about us he said you know it's you guys turn to to you know sink or swim you know time for you to do your own thing and we did and our first album that we produced ourselves was our biggest album and i'm proud of that so i'd have to say that album and i think all of our albums were were strong uh production wise song wise uh we had our own style of music you know and we did ballads that nobody else did. We did things uh, like no one else did. And even though ballads weren't our claim to fame, our ballads are hugely popular, especially down in the South, especially Real Love and uh, Giving in the Love and and Say Yes. Those songs, I mean, we can't go through the South, especially without having to play those songs because they want to hear them. And so uh, our ballads stood on their own two feet as well. And I'm proud of that because a lot of funk bands didn't really do ballads. They did, made attempts at them, but they basically did up-tempo stuff. We actually could do both. And I think that, again, kind of separated us from everybody else. Absolutely. I was going to also ask you if there's one or two sort of hidden gems that weren't hits that people should go back and check out because you think maybe they missed it. Um, but it sounds like maybe you just touched on with some of those ballads. Yeah, uh, Time on the Shot of Love album is really uh, one of my favorite songs that was never a single and never got much airplay. But I really like that song musically and vocally. Uh, we do some really, really good background vocals on that song. And another one that's a sleeper to me, it was off of the Outrageous album, A Baby I'm Lonely. I really think that song uh, could have been something. It's kind of a, or kind of a, got a little rock uh, tone to it. Uh, but those are the two songs I'd have to say that uh, would be sleeper songs to me that you, you should maybe take another listen to. Um, i trying to think if there's anything else uh, on the, another album uh that i um i'd have to see them but those are the ones that stand out to me but we, i thought we had a lot of good songs and um maybe it, they didn't work for whatever reason but uh i think our body of work uh was was pretty good were there any tracks that surprised you that they became hits Actually, no, uh, because everything that was hits, we kind of expected to be hits. That's why we we, you know, we released them as singles. We thought those were the strongest of the batch of songs that were on the album. So it did. It, what did actually it was the opposite. It surprised me when they didn't hit like we thought. Like you know, pull my string and and, and from nine until we thought they were going to be way bigger than they were. Uh, so it was more of a surprise when the songs we thought were going to do 
something didn't do what we thought they were going to do. Never, I don't think it was ever a situation. I think everybody knew Fantastic Voyage was something special, but I don't think we knew it was going to be what it is. This song has had a life of its own for over 40 years. And I mean, it's been in pretty much everything from commercials to movies to you name it. And it just, it's the, it's the song that keeps on paying. And I just, uh, you know, it's a, it's a great, you know, you get, you see it's in movies and you get a check and it's like, oh, I didn't even know it was in that, you know, so it keeps surprising us, you know, and, and I'm thankful about it because it is the song that keeps on giving. Yeah, and it's one of those two that, you know, at least for me, and I'm thinking a lot of people, you never get tired of it. I mean, no, I don't know if you feel that way because you play it all the time, but no, I, right. you know, anytime I hear it start the way it starts and kicks in, I mean, I want to hear it, you know, every time. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and it's interesting because, you know, uh, Everybody likes that song. White people, black, Hispanics, you name it. Because I run into people, and all you got to do, you know, they may not know Lakeside. Or say, nah, I'm not familiar with the band. I said, well, it's a fantastic voice. Come along. Oh, yeah, I know. <laughs> so soon as you say that. And I mean, that, and that pretty much is everybody, you know, that that is, is fans of that record. And as a result, fans of the band. A lot of people don't know it was us, but uh, when you sing that melody, then it's like, oh yeah, I know that song. So that that is that was. It's been a big song. It's been a big big song for us. In fact, we've built our career around it because we've adapted the the pirate theme as our uh, what we dress like on stage because it was really our biggest record, our biggest hit, and it just kind of works. And what it does too is it separates us from anybody else because nobody can dress like pirates <laughs> except Lakeside. You can dress like anything else you want, but you cannot dress like a pirate because that is ours. And that's what's funny because, you know, we've kind of over the years adapted to that because back in the, in the day, we used to, uh, when we did a tour, uh, our current album would be our theme for our dress, our stage dress, because we dressed like cowboys in the Rough Riders era. We dressed like um, uh, G-Men after Untouchable Souls. And we did, of course, for the Fantasy Voice, we dressed as pirates. And so after all the years, we came back to that theme because it's like, really? That's really what works for us. It kind of identifies the band. It is our signature song. And so that theme has become basically our stage uh, garb. That's what we wear. And like I said, nobody can do it except us because everybody knows we're the pirates. Mm -hmm. As well known as it is uh, among everybody, mm -hmm. it's so surprising in a way that it didn't cross over bigger like pop, you know, and become a complete crossover smash too. Um, do you have any explanation for that? I mean, was it maybe something Solar wasn't focused enough on or? Well, we weren't strong in the pop market, Solar wasn't. Um, especially, you know, we were basically an R&B record company. And, you know, even though The Beat Goes On, it, was, it crossed over and did was And second time around, uh, some of the Shalimar stuff crossed over uh, for whatever reason, pop-wise, more so than just about everybody else. Um, and I, I can't explain that, but I know that we weren't as strong in the pop market radio-wise in terms of having the team that could go out and promote the records uh, to the pop stations like they could, the R&B stations, because it was no problem for R&B. We would always have stations across the country. The only place we never really played until Fantastic Voyage was New York, and that was uh, the home of Frankie Crocker, the New York rocker. I don't know if you, I'm sure you had to have heard of, of uh, Frankie. Uh, and he was, uh, you know, head 
guy at WBLS. And at the time when, you know, we were uh, popping, uh, everybody did what Frankie did on the East Coast, from Philly all the way up to New York, wherever Frankie played, everybody else played. And if Frankie didn't play it, nobody else played it. And so what happened with The Voice, it was so big in New York with their competition, I can't think of the second number two station there right now, to to uh, BLS, but they were playing it. And so Frankie had to play it. And so we were invited when we were in town doing a show for him. Well, actually, if you had if you came to New York and you were doing a concert, he had to have a piece of your show in order for it to be in New York or you you weren't going to play. So everybody did what Frankie said to do. Anyway, he invited us to the studio. We went in. It's the first time I ever seen a DJ who didn't play records. He was in a booth by himself and somebody else over on the side was playing the records that he told him to play. I'd never seen that before, but that was Frankie Crocker, the New York rocker. And I always thought for one thing, he was way too big to be a DJ. He was bigger than the artists that he played because everybody bowed down to Frankie Crocker. I said, this guy has way too much power for a, to be a DJ. But he was uh, he was the man. And that, that time for about 15 years, Frankie Crocker ran New, uh, New York and radio on the East Coast. And he, he played Shalimar because that was kind of fit into what his format was. Whispers got fit into what his format was. He didn't play any funk. He didn't play Gap Band, he didn't play Cameo, until they had super big records, and then he had to play them. But if it was left up to him, he didn't play funk. He didn't like funk. Mm. No, he didn't Man. like funk at all. Wow. Yep. Yeah, and he was, and he didn't have to play anybody because people were paying him. In fact, I'll share a secret. Uh, Dick Griffey was trying to pay him to play Lakeside, and he didn't want the money. He said, I don't play funk. I don't care how much money you offer me. I don't play funk. And so that's why we never got on until Fantastic Voyage. He wouldn't play funk. Hmm. Wouldn't take the money. <laughs> wow. That is really right, right. That does sound too big. <laughs> yeah, that's how big he was. Well, I, no, he didn't want the money. I, I don't play funk. So you keep your money. So I was like, wow. Yeah, this guy's too big. He's too big for his britches. Wow. Well, speaking of funk, uh, Otis, what, what to you makes funk so special? It's, it's, it's a, uh, man, it's something lively about funk. It's something, it, it has life. If you listen to some of the stuff, you know, like the Gap Band and, and George Clinton, you know, and even us, it, it has life. It make, you cannot sit down. When certain songs come on, whether you want to or not, you have to do, you have to move, you gotta dance, you gotta do something. So that's life. There's music, there's life in that music. And for it to be what it is, and it's become what it is over the years, and believe you me, uh, this younger generation has basically adapted that same funk life and put it into their music. So there's life in this music, and it's something that I'm proud to be a part of because we created our own brand of it. Absolutely. And I think it still flies under the radar a little bit, though, you know, in terms of oh, yeah, not getting equal status to soul and rock sure. and all that. You sure, know, I'm agree. not sure why that is, but, uh, you know, I, I try to have a say in it and help keep it in the forefront, you know, as being as lofty as it deserves. I appreciate that. And you're doing a great job because you're keeping it uh, on the air. You keep it in, in, in people's ears and eyes. And I think that's important because, uh, you know, 
we who grew up with this music and who have been part of producing and creating it, you know, it keeps us alive. And that's very, very important, you know, to have this legacy that we created to live on and on and on and on. And that's the one thing I'm proud of being a part of Lakeside and our music that we, we uh, gave to the public. This music will go on long after everybody else is gone. And that is a legacy that I'm proud of. Your music will never die. Yeah. And that funk, you know, that helps you feel like a 25-year-old when you're on stage <laughs> still, right? I'm telling you, dude, I can't, I can't tell you how the adrenaline kicks in. And it's like all the aches and pains are gone for about 60 minutes. And then we go back to the dressing room, it's like, oh, my goodness, my back hurts, oh, my leg, oh, my... And it's just, we go back to uh, human beings again. But it's something about hitting that stage that gives us such adrenaline and energy that the and it and, and it and it transfers to the audience. That's why they're so hyped because they see this energy coming from us and they cannot sit down. Yeah. I mean talk about a fantastic voyage. You've been living Yes, it, sir. Right? That's right. No, it's, it's been it's been a wonderful trip. I'm still glad to be a part of it because, like I said, I enjoy going out and performing for the people because they come out to see you who they grew up with your music. They got your albums and CDs at the house, you know, and they come out to hear you perform the songs that are the song track of their lives. And that is very, very important and such a blessing to all of us as we're able still able to do that you know at our ages you know we're not young people anymore but we still can go out and perform and we still enjoy being in front of the people absolutely and we're so grateful for it you know thank you yeah uh, is there anything otis uh that maybe you're you're doing uh that you wanted to highlight that we didn't touch on or uh yeah well yeah, like i said i'm i'm involved with the uh um Hollywood Beauty Awards, which was my partner's uh, brainchild. It is actually uh, an industry award show, but it uh, honors the people behind the scenes, the artists, the, the makeup artists, the photographers, and those people who make all the, the stars and the celebrities and the actors look good on camera. And so it's become the Oscars of uh, the industry because Everybody comes. This is amazing uh, almost now who hasn't been there uh, because they support their people. Uh, Denzel Washington came the year that his uh, uh, barber uh, won the award and he presented to him the award. And uh, so they come out in support of those people who've been with them for years, doing these things for them over these years, hair, makeup and all that stuff. And they come out in support of these people. So it has become quite an event. And like I said, ours uh, this year is going to be March 9th, which is in a couple of weeks, so Thursday night. And uh, we have quite a lineup again going to be there. And then we do the Daytime Beauty Awards, which is done in the fall. And that's uh, that the, the show honors the science behind beauty, which is those people who have, you know, created the products and things like that. And it's really amazing uh, what you learn uh, when you get involved in different things, you know. So, again, my, my uh, job is to create the music for these things. And I do some of the writing for the presentations and stuff like that. But it keeps me creatively involved musically because it's another outlet for me to, to create music so I'm, I'm really happy and proud to be a part of that 
Um, and like I said, we're, uh, that's something we've been, we're going into our ninth year uh, with the Hollywood Beauty Awards and uh, we missed a year during the pandemic. No, no, I take that back. We, did, we didn't do the year after because people were still not coming out in uh, uh, March 2021. So we didn't do it that year. So, uh, but we're back in business and the show is doing well and uh, we, we're streaming it. So it's, it's places that you can find it in streaming. Very good. And is there a website or anything like that that you want to share? Well, it's uh, uh, HollywoodBeautyAwards.com, and uh, that's where you can you know see what we do and everything like that. And uh, and I can be reached on Instagram at uh, at Otis Stokes uh, on Instagram, and I keep up with things that I'm doing not only with the show but with Lakeside uh, on the Instagram. So uh, I'm just trying to stay busy, and when I'm not being a pirate, I'm doing other things. So. Uh, I have I have a busy life. Uh, what is the situation with like Mark and you know doing a different lakeside and you know that that whole thing? When Mark started, I don't know. He got the David uh, the, the David Ruffin syndrome, and he thought he was lakeside, and so he started doing things. Uh, you know, he would book gigs for himself uh, and opposite what Lakeside was doing, it was conflicting there. And because they wanted to keep the band together, they, you know, kind of put up with it. Because I know I, I used to be in touch with these guys even when I wasn't working with them. And I talked to Steve and I said, man, uh, you know, why y'all put up with this? He said, well, man, we're just trying to keep the band together and and stuff like that. So uh, what ended up happening, Mark actually uh, copy uh, wrote the name Lakeside, and we never knew that it wasn't copywritten because we had done, uh, uh, I don't know how many albums under the name Lakeside, and we didn't realize that it wasn't copywritten. And so he went and copy uh, wrote the uh, name Lakeside and took it for himself and started doing Lakeside gigs. And so um, when we found, uh, well, they actually they found Eddie Guyton, who's the lead singer now that basically takes Mark's uh, spot. Uh, when they found him, he does a fine job. And so they knew that they could go on. So uh, they were working on the name Lakeside for a while. And then uh, he, uh, Mark started uh, threatening promoters to sue him because he owned the name. There's now another, just, just a bunch of nonsense and, and, and terrible behavior. So uh, the group uh, copy wrote the name Original Lakeside. And so we go under the name Original Lakeside, so there's no con a conflict. And you know, you, when you get the Original Lakeside, you're getting six of the guys who sang and played on all the records that you hear. Mark has his band, and it's just him and whoever he puts together to be the band. But we are indeed the Original Lakeside. And so when you're uh, looking for the billings on shows, if it doesn't say the original Lakeside, it's probably fake side. And that's what we call it because it's really not us. So if you want the real deal, you have to find the original Lakeside and you'll know you'll be getting the real thing. That's, you know, and that's all I want to say about it. It is what it is now, but we're both going on doing our thing. And uh, people know the difference when they come see the shows. They know who the original group is. It's no doubt about it. None. Except no substitutes. No substitutions. I'm telling you. Go see one and go see the other, and you'll know which one is which. I promise you. <laughs> it won't be any doubt who the original Lakeside is, you know. And, and on that note, Scott, I did want to share a couple of things that are responsible for that we haven't really gotten the credit for. And that's uh, 
the fact that we started back when we started doing concerts, um, you know, being kind of Christian people, we started doing a prayer uh, before our show. And we would grab hands and, you know, we would say our prayer and then we'd do a little hype thing after it. And we started that in uh, 1978 when uh, we started doing the big arenas because we were, you know, kind of a way of, you know, uh, uh, thanking the Lord for our success and just for us, you know, getting to the place where we were. And over the years, I've seen that uh, when I watch, you know, videos of, of people doing shows. Everybody does that now. And I'm sure, because nobody was doing it back in the day because, you know, there were, weren't a lot of professing Christians at that time because it was all sex, drugs, and rock and roll and, and all that goes with that. So, you know, a lot of people weren't professing the Lord at that time because they were too busy partying. So we knew, because we worked with a lot of folks, okay? We worked with everybody and everybody saw everybody's habits and nobody was doing that. But now I see it as industry standard. I've seen everybody pretty much that tours now that have that kind of a ritual before they go on stage. And, I, and I'm, I'm, I'm giving the credit to Lakeside because I know that we were first bands that I knew was doing it. And uh, we still do it today. It's just kind of the thing that we do before the show. We say our prayer and we do our little hype thing and and then we go to work. And so that I, I want to I take the credit for that because I see that now as industry standard, and we we started that back in 1978. So that and uh, uh, the the littles are two of the things that come from Lakeside that we don't get credit for, but I know where it started, uh, and uh, it's time that everybody else knew. And since we're talking and telling stories, I'm going to tell all the stories. <laughs> I appreciate that. And also dropping the mic. Don't forget that one either. <laughs> oh, yeah. That was, that was the first one, man. When I started seeing people do it, I was like, man, we were doing that back in 75. We were dropping the mic for 45 years. Are you kidding me? So, uh, but, you know, that's what we did because, like I said, our standard was standing ovations. Nothing less. If we didn't get a standing, and we might have got a round, you know, a huge applause and everything, but if they didn't stand up, we said, man, we didn't get them tonight. So that was our standard. They must stand when we leave the stage. And nine times out of 10, they did. And so that was our standard. So that, you know, dropping the mic was part of whatever it took to get you that standing ovation. <laughs> we fell out on the floor, whatever it took for us to get that crowd to, you know, during our performance, that's what we did. And dropping the mic was part of it. And so, I, like, everybody dropped the mic now. That's the end of it. Yeah, we started, we started, ended it in 75 in the club. We dropped the mic. That's it. We're gone. So, uh, I'm, I'm proud to say some of the things that the Lakeside is responsible for that we never got credit for. But sooner or later, you got to get your credit, right? Yeah. Well, they're going to get, <laughs> you're going to get it now for sure through truth and rhythm. Because <laughs> now we got the real deal, you know? Oh, and, yeah. Uh, so glad that you could share it with us. And I'm hoping you're not going to drop the mic because it'll be hard on my ears. But, <laughs> but you but you should because uh, you leave But my mic, is, my mic is on the stand, see, so, <laughs> you know, so I, I, if I drop this, I'm going to break my glass table and everything. So I, think I'll, I think I'll hold off on dropping the mic today. And we'll All do right. it symbolically. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Uh, man, fantastic. This has been so much fun talking to you and so uh, much likewise. appreciate the stories. And uh, thank you so much for all the music and for sharing it. 
Man, it has been my pleasure. You, you're a great guy, Scott. I like what you do. And really, thank you for what you're doing for not only me in Lakeside, but for all of us who you go out of your way to talk to and share the stories of. And it, to me, it's priceless what you do, and I, I appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Truth and Rhythm. A big thank you goes out to our guest as well as to you, the viewer and listener. Also, much gratitude to Pleasure for supplying the show's funky opening and closing music. As a reminder, you can always access the complete list of linked shows by episode at funkinstuff.net. I urge you to support this program and receive the extra benefits along with that by subscribing to the Funk and Stuff channel on YouTube and sharing it with funk, R&B, and jazz lovers, joining Truth and Rhythm's membership program at Patreon, submitting a donation at funkinstuff.net, buying Everything is on the One, the first guide to funk book at Amazon, shopping at the Funky Things store for cool merchandise at funkinstuff.net, and linking through funkinstuff.net for all of your Amazon purchases. In addition, if you're an artist or anyone seeking proven, results-oriented, professional marketing, PR, writing, or editing consultation or production, check out the media services section at funkinstuff.net. Also, I encourage you to drop me a line at scottg at funkinstuff.net. I love the feedback, suggestions, guest requests, appearance and sponsorship inquiries, and just talking about my favorite subject, groove-based music. For now, and as always, this is Scott Dr. GX Wolfine saying, keep on keep vibing, on vibing to the rhythm of